to Hip Hop Caucus's Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. actually have had the link for Paris to Pittsburgh documentary for a couple of months now. TC sent me an email and was like, hey, do you want to host a viewing in Charlotte? And I said, yes. And um, so, you know, you're supposed, you're supposed to do your due diligence. And then as we started thinking about what we could do here for Farm, the thing that I want us to think about as we have this conversation, I want you to think about is some of the impacts. So, right, everybody doesn't live in a community where sea level rise is an issue. Orlando's not in a place where sea level rise is an issue. However, they did talk about what that, what the impact of that could have on their community. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the environmental issues that we'll talk about today, thinking about what that looks like in your community, right? So how we can actively go back and say, we need to do something about this. Because one thing that I know for sure is that communities of color are always most impacted by anything that happens, right? Mm -hmm. And so whether it's we can't rebuild, so we have to move wherever they tell us we have to go, or it could be that the area is gentrifying and um, we have to move, but they're now cleaning up the the stuff that was there that caused us to be as sick as we were before, and they're only moving us to areas where that isn't again. So we just need to continue to think about what we can do. Mm. I want to begin the conversation with Chris. And, you know, you talked in the film about you being, you learned to surf at age 10 and being able to see the difference in sea level rise from then until now. Mm-hmm. And we know that, you know, fleet farming is like your your pet project. It's like your <laughs> it's like your thing. One of my babies. One of your babies. Right. All right. So can you talk to us a little bit about the planning process for that and who was at the table and how you got this going to become what it is today? Wonderful. Well first of all, thank you, Brandy. Thank you to everybody here for coming out and engaging on this topic. It's not something that Many people, you know, what we're trying to do is elevate this conversation, and it's important to bring these conversations to every conference. And I'm really excited to bring it here. Fleet farming, and you all saw in the film, is kind of a new way of redefining local food. And the whole effort was, how do we turn what's uh, basically wasted lands throughout our communities, and that is homeowner lawns and vacant public land, into an edible oasis, right? The concept was, how do we turn food deserts into a food oasis? And um, early on, this was back in 2013, um, Fleet Farming's part of a larger organization called Ideas for Us, and every month there is a think tank, essentially, that's, that's hosted in the community. It's a community forum, and it essentially focuses on different topics that, you know, challenges that we're facing throughout Orlando, but also globally. Right, this issue around food systems is a global issue. And as, as I was talking about in the film, about 30% of the global climate change emissions are coming from our food system. We're transporting food all over the country. Uh, it's super dependent on fossil-based energy sources, right? We're plowing the land with fossil-based tractors. We're harvesting the land. Then you put it on a truck that's diesel. Then you take it to a warehouse, right, that's nearby, and you wrap it in fossil-based plastic. And then you go to the grocery store and you're driving a car to and from. And when you looked at it, 10 times the amount of calories that you get out of one tomato were energy calories. So 10 times fossil fuel calories are in one calorie that we consume from any food product that we eat. 
And that's a huge challenge, and that was the challenge that we posed to the community. And out of that, the community came up with this concept called fleet farming. The idea to, to mobilize a fleet of volunteers within that particular community and create a hyper-local food system that turns neighborhoods into agri-hoods, right? Converts our homeowner lawns into these organic in-ground farms and then mobilize, you know, a fleet of volunteers to help maintain those farms for the communities, uh, share that food with the homeowners who are giving us the land, and then take the excess to SNAP-eligible farmers markets and to other restaurants in the nearby community. And so that was the overall concept behind fleet farming. We're now five years old, and the idea has started to branch to different neighborhoods. And again, our core focus is how do we address the food insecurity and food access issues? Uh, and we're doing this in Orlando in the community of Paramore, where the model has now focused on addressing um, you know, access to healthy food for, for low-income communities. So I want to talk a little bit more, I guess, about the implementation of that and the strategies that you use to be able to get people on board mm -hmm. and the innovation and the intersectionality of the, the food. Because I actually had a conversation yesterday, I did my I did a presentation on circular economy and how it can be used to help with economic mobility, right? And so when I started, people were like, yeah, I didn't even see how that was going to come together, but you right. brought it home for us. Sure. So talk to us about how you bring the farming piece together with the climate change. Yeah, so I mean, just the ability of us to localize food production is is addressing the climate change issue, right? Because we're so dependent, interdependent on this global food industrial complex is what I call it, right? Where it's, 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 it's totally interwoven. And every day, people don't realize this, but every day in America, we lose upwards of 3,000 acres of agricultural land to future development. That's a lot of land that every day is being lost to development. And if you think about it, that's not sustainable, right? Think 40, 50 years down the road, how much more land are we gonna have to actually grow our food to meet our demands? And what that's gonna do is make us so dependent on other countries and other places to meet our growing needs. So just by localizing food production, we're, we're beginning to address. The other cool component of fleet farming, as you saw, is it's all bicycle powered. So the idea is zero emission transportation for us to build harvest and distribute that produce within that community and keep the revenue, keep the money that's generated from the sale of, of that produce back into the community to hire more people. Um, and that's exactly what we've been doing with fleet farming. I have an entire team. There's about seven employees of fleet farming now. Uh, and, and every week we're engaging community members who come out, they volunteer a little bit of their time, and they take home produce as a means of repayment. And it's an ongoing cycle, and it's been, it's been really successful so far. So we're addressing the climate change by reducing the emissions from the transportation of, yep. the, of fuel. But what about from the land, like the land emissions, and make a tighter connection to how the farm also helps to keep the environment in its cycle? Sure. So soils are a huge sink for carbon in general. It's one of the largest sinks after the oceans, actually, of, of sequestering carbon and keeping that within the soils. So, of course, there's an entire soil amendment process that we go through of repurposing food waste into soils. We have an entire composting initiative, and it's really to replenish the soil so that it can replenish ourselves, our souls, and, 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 and increase uh, you know, our quality of life, our health and well-being. Um, so yeah, there is that definite connection. A lot of the emissions coming from agriculture are also in animal products, right? And the vast majority, in fact, of the agricultural emissions are coming from the fact that we're so dependent on 
the agricultural, you know, meat industry in general. And I think, you know, one way that we're trying to do is encourage a more vegetarian type diet, right? And by growing fruits and vegetables, uh, it's not just veggies, it's actually fruit trees as well. We're able to encourage uh, families to start incorporating a little bit, even if it's a small amount, into their daily lives and hopefully becomes part of their, their overall well-being. All right, Michelle, we're, I'm happy that you're here and know that you've organized around some pretty impressive things. And aside from being on the front lines, you incorporate methods of healing in your work, specifically within the environmental and climate justice arena. How have those methods helped you strengthen what you do? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, so thank you for bringing up the healing aspect. I think that just like we're talking about equity and we're talking about resiliency, which really need to be foundations of our work, not just like this side project that we're going to work on, but really like what we're doing, we have to be conscious that what we're building here is, you know, like the values of the world that we want to see, especially as people of color, right? Um, so, you know, like in my work as a community organizer and just being out in the field and talking to community members every day, and there's so much trauma because as we know, structural racism, sexism, all the ism, there's so much trauma. And so we're trying to do this work of transforming political systems, transforming social systems, but we're doing it still through a lens of, of trauma. And so, you know, a lot of the time what ends up happening is uh, people get burnt out or that trauma gets you know, like revisited or like it comes out and if we don't have like skills to address that, sometimes we're doing more harm than good. And so something that we've been working um, at Organize Florida is, you know, we have a, a healing collective. And so right now we're at the stage of having conversations on how can we really integrate healing practices and different healing modalities into our work. And so sometimes that might mean like, say we have a community uh, meeting, we're going to talk about something political, uh, but institutionalizing, for example, 30 minutes, 20 minutes of meditation, or working with people that have experience with trauma and actually, you know, like having them be part of our events. As I mentioned, we're working with communities that there's a lot of trauma. Um, and so, yeah, so through through my work and just really like sometimes organizing without that healing lens. As I mentioned, I've seen that people just get more frustrated. And, you know, I, I like to say that part of the healing process, organizing and, and this work that we're doing, it has been for me like such a deep spiritual work because of the, you know, at the end of the day, what our communities are looking for is, is liberation, right? And, and self-determination. And so I, I firmly, firmly believe that you know, part of the process is healing because how can we create a, this world that we so desperately want and deserve, but if we're coming from a place of hurt? That's actually pretty powerful for me because I'm very much into thinking about how we help our communities heal from the trauma. And like you said, if you're doing the work, you are constantly being re-traumatized or that experience is coming up and it makes it very difficult for you to sometimes be effective in the work that you're doing. So I think that's amazing. And so 
going back to the film and thinking about the voices of the young people that we saw there and the second season of our podcast, I think 100% is young people will win. Mm. And we just saw in the film, and I'm sure we can name our own personal examples of young people who are doing great work. And Chris, you know, you're one of the youngest sustainability directors in the entire country. Um, you know, and Michelle, you're on the board of directors for Power Shift Network and a senior advisor for environmental climate justice. So from all that you've seen and, and experienced in your journey, what are some of the young people taught both of you? Yeah, so I think we go back to the basics of grassroots and community, which is that people have the answers. People have the answers. Just like communities of color have the answers of how of what they want to see because of their lived experiences, because they're living these conditions every day. Young people have the answers. I think it's just a matter of earlier where we're having a conversation of like process and we're very clear on the what. I think right now we're trying to figure out is the how. And so, you know, I, I go back to community organizing basics, asking people, okay, wh like, what are you thinking? What do you think are the solutions, right? Not, not imposing our own. Um, so I think it's a balance of, you know, uh, we have experience, right? That maybe some young people don't have, but they truly have the solutions. So I think it's just thinking about it like, okay, how can we use this experience? to uplift their voices and work on solutions together. Be because I think that's the other thing that I see, like we need to co-create. I think we're, um, for different reasons, the, si the work can be very siloed. And so I've learned so much being at PowerShift and just working with young people. And, you know, it just grounds me in that they know the solutions. We just have to listen. Yeah, and just, just to add on to that, I mean, Young people have an incredible way of, of thinking beyond barriers, beyond borders, beyond being tainted uh, by some of the structural racism or some of the history that we have. And so creativity is, I think, one of the most powerful things that young people have, the ability to think innovative, to, to think uh, whether the solution is true or not, or it can move forward. The notion of them bringing forward ideas is probably the most powerful thing that I've seen and I've been able to engage. Um, ideas for us is, is an organization I mentioned that started when I was a student at the University of Central Florida trying to change UCF and change the world at the same time. And it's grown into a, a network of different student chapters at high schools, different universities, even community groups overseas. And, and most of the growth is actually throughout Africa, throughout Southeast Asia. And the amount, the, the unbelievable amount of creativity that they have to solve issues in their own communities is just unparalleled. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. And um, that's something I think we as public administrators need to embrace more of. I don't think that we do enough to, to listen to the youth and to listen to that un, um, kind of unbiased perspective um, because we're in this box and we know some of the challenges and some of the rules internally and procedures that may or may not fit what that idea is looking like, but, but there is a way. And if we can just be more open to, and, and to listening and to embracing those perspectives, I think that we can get out of some of the traditional structural challenges that we're facing within government and within society in general. Awesome. Power to the young people for sure. Awesome, awesome. All right, I have one last question and it's for Robin and it's gonna lead us into an activity that I want us to do as a group and this wasn't part of my 
cue cards, <laughs> but it's something I'm feeling like I want us to do. Um, so the question that I have for you, Robin, is what is one environmental policy that the Green Party would implement tomorrow if it could? I am probably um, a thorn in the Green Party side sometimes because what we, what we strive to do is to break the, the white environmentalist um, attitude or just as far as environmental justice or climate change, seeing as just white people hugging on trees. <laughs> so we've got to break that and have conversations that, um, that can bring about solutions. And so one thing, you know, there's talk about the Green New Deal, uh, kind of like a conversation of who, who started, who didn't. Well, I'm not satisfied with either one of them because what they forgot to do was to bring African-Americans, people of color to the table, and let us craft our own policies. So I think we have to start there, and we have to have the conversation of reparations, because through hurricane gentrification, through all of these environmental injustices, food injustice, um, we have we have definitely been left out and lost, and we're owed for this for the land that our that our that our parents, that our grandparents, 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 that they toiled the land. So um, I can't speak for the whole Green Party, but as a Green Party person. Those are, those are policies based on reparations. I'm not talking about 40 acres in the mule, but I'm talking about things that matter that I would put forth as a policymaker today. So, okay, so if we're not talking about 40 acres in a mule, that's what we you know, generally hear is reparations. Tell us what, what would be in that, in that deal for us. What would be the reparations that you would say, hey, we need? Sure, affordable housing, um, real affordable housing, because now it's like, who, who can afford this? Uh, but affordable and decent housing, tax exempt, and, and there, there are so many things that, that we could get into, uh, land and property ownership. Just give it back to us anyway. We know it's ours anyway. So land and home ownership. You know, being first uh, and not last um, on, on many of those issues that, that we're considering, we have to, we talked about that today. It's just not, equality doesn't work. We need real equity. Um, equity loans is like, yeah, right. So we need real equity loans. Okay. So in, in, in thinking about, I told you I wanted us to, to complete an exercise. Um, and so what I'd like for us to do is kind of as a group, think about some of the environmental issues that you're dealing with in your area. Um, and then what do you think the solutions are? So we just had a conversation about the people have the solutions. So if we know what the problems are, what are we thinking the solutions are to some of those issues? Um, and what does that look like as an administrator? How do I go back and say, this is an issue in my community, right? And so I, I'm going to give you a short synopsis of what I would say, and it's based on the presentation I gave yesterday around circular economy and the work that we're doing in Charlotte to help circular economy address economic mobility. But as we have this conversation, I definitely want at least one or two of you all to kind of share, think about what this looks like for your community and how you can take this back. So, Charlotte, if you follow national news, um, you know, they'll tell you that we are one of the best cities for blacks to make money. And they'll tell you that, I mean, they'll tell you a lot of things. It's a great place for black folk. It's a great place for folk, period. That's what they say. But then we have this Chetty study that came out and says if you're born in poverty in Charlotte, then you're most likely going to die in poverty in Charlotte. 
So this, they both could be true, right? I'm not saying that, that one's right and the other's not, but I'm saying that for a group of people in Charlotte, that the reality of it being the best place for you is not there. And so in looking at how we create the equity and how we create some, you know, give these reparations, how do we create that as public administrators? How do we create that as policy um, makers? And so thinking about it, our city manager had an opportunity to to see circular economy in action over in Barcelona and Amsterdam. And so what circular economy means is that it, we don't go, nothing goes to the landfill. I mean, I'm making, I'm simplifying this very much for the sake of time. And so we send nothing to the landfill. We keep everything in the loop and we figure out how we innovate and create. And so you heard the mayor of Pittsburgh talking about, you know, we went from this, this meal town. And so once that went bust, we had to figure out what we were going to do. Innovation is that next thing. And so how do we innovate with garbage? How do we innovate and create opportunities around environmental challenges? And so that's what the circular economy, it promises to do for us in Charlotte. But here's the thing. You got to be intentional about making sure that our communities are involved in that, right? And so being intentional about that means that I'm going to make sure that these, because workforce development programs are not on the table. And so they're, they're saying that we're promising they're gonna, we're gonna find these jobs for people. The circular economy creates jobs. Well, it can't create jobs if you're not intentional about creating those jobs. And it can't create jobs for this, this group of people who will die in poverty because they were born in poverty if you're not intentional about making sure that they know the opportunity is there and you present that opportunity to them and you partner and create that opportunity. So I love this whole, fleet farming situation because think about that and in communities of color I literally just moved back into a black community and in Charlotte it's gentrifying heavily I I probably got this table probably has more land than I have at my house right Um, but it's a food desert like when I think about where I'm going to the grocery store I mean we have what we call the NFL and I won't tell you what it stands for but it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a grocery store. And um, and so, but I'm not going to the NFL for my groceries. Um, you know, my grandma said, you don't buy them dented cans, honey, and I'm not buying no dented cans or no bad meat. And that, that's what it looks like when you walk in the NFL. So this opportunity for all of us to have this small plot of land and be able to, my neighbor can grow some tomatoes, I can grow some cucumbers, because that's all we got land for. And then this person grows and that person grows. And as a community, we now have food. Like to me, and then empowerment. empowerment. And then we can take that, like the excess, and take it to the market at and make money off of what we've been able to grow on our land. So to me, those are the types of opportunities that we need to be thinking about. And then because I understand the reason I asked Chris about the soil piece earlier is because I understand how contaminated our soil is. And so we're growing food in contaminated soil. And so for us to be able to learn how to compost and do soil remediation so that now we're, we are actually eating food that's not contaminated. You know, because even though we're growing it ourselves, if the soil isn't right, it doesn't matter because we're still putting, you know, so all of that. So it's thinking about those things. So that's that's my Charlotte story. Right. And that's how this resonates with me. There's also this movement around people addressing food waste within our communities. 
And by volume, upwards of 30 to 40% of the waste that goes into the trash bin is organics. And those organics, when they hit the landfill and they get into an anaerobic addition, they create methane, and methane is worse off as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. Although smaller amounts, more concentrated, better at keeping heat in, right? And so there is a way for us to repurpose that, and there's a, a movement um, of people who are now doing these small-scale community composting efforts where they're picking up from homeowners or giving them a five-gallon bucket, might be wrapped with a little logo or something, you pay a small amount per week and they come about and they pick up your food waste and they take it to a central composting facility and they make those soils and that can help us to divert some of the organics away from the waste stream. And In Orlando, we actually have a full food waste collection program for businesses where we take all of the food waste from hotels like this, theme parks, uh, you know, restaurants in general, and we take it to what's called an anaerobic digestion facility or a biogas plant and it creates biogas from the food waste and we create electricity that gets pumped onto the grid and minimizes fossil fuel use by diverting food waste, right? So you have this both an industrial scale, but you can do it at a community scale too and create soils. Back to your uh, idea. May I yes, share a vision? Mm -hmm. So I love that we're talking about gardening and the land and I will also like to ground us in people and I love that you mentioned opportunity and so asking like, are we, uh, are we building communities of, of opportunity? And what I mean by that, for example, now that we were, you know, talking about all these great ideas on gardening, and it's like, how, how can we use this to build opportunities? For example, like returning citizens, right? How can we create programs so that returning citizens have jobs, um, you know, gardening and then just like feeding that entire cycle. And there are actually states where, you know, like people are trying this out. Um, and so that just came to my mind because of course, as you may know, here in Florida, we just passed Amendment 4, returning the right to vote for people that had felonies. And so, um, I think, you know, as, as public servants that you are, um, you know, like always make the connection of environment, but how are we like grounding people too? And so two things from that that um, made me think about. One, we are actually doing a curbside food waste, um, collection pilot in Charlotte. So it's very small scale, but people are so excited about it. We have what Chris talked about. We do have a company that actually you pay, I think, 10 or $15 a month and they'll come and pick it up curbside, but their capacity is very limited. And so what we're trying to do is build into our collection program, build a proof point for us to be able to provide this as a service. Recycling is amazing for what it was when it was needed, but we need stronger solutions to be able to get the food waste out because that's what's causing climate change. That's the first thing. And the second thing is in thinking about um, people I think th this whole environmental sector is a place where people who don't have a lot of skill or education can come in and learn and easily become entrepreneurs. So as we start to think about equity and how we create opportunities for people so they're not dependent on $9, $10, $12, even $15 an hour wage you know, jobs, they can actually come in and start to make money, be their own bosses. And that's the type of power we want to create for the people that are in our communities.
Good evening, everyone. I just wanted to share because I live and work in Florida um, from the city of Lauder Hill, and we're very fortunate to have a mayor that is very, very big on community gardening and uh, making sure that if you do not have enough of your own property or land space, that you can learn to garden from a pot even, mm -hmm. if it's just to start to grow your own vegetables. So he's been very, very active and proactive in that effort. So that's something that's very interesting. But fleet farming is also very interesting to me as well as a new concept because I didn't know about that. So I'm definitely going to bring that back and share to see how we can bring that opportunity to our homeowners in the city of Lauderhill. But also another concept that uh, resonates with me that I'm going to come back to is uh, because I'm in public works. And one of the things that the video had spoken to is um, creating those man-made lakes. Now, of course, we know we don't have that much more space, but those man-made lakes that we can utilize some land on so that we can have that stormwater that is coming in to percolate into those areas. So that's something that's very interesting. All of this is amazing um, and very informative, but those are two things I'm definitely going to bring back to Lauder Hill to see how we can implement and to research and have more of those conversations. Awesome. I just have a, a couple just comments that I jotted down that I want to make sure I, I get across here. Too often this issue of climate change is presented in this very ambiguous, very grandiose way that doesn't relate back to people. And this issue is a people issue. This is a public health crisis at the end of the day. And it has nothing to do with polar bears or penguins. It's about people. And the more that our elected officials and our leadership like you all within cities around the country begin to correlate this issue of climate change and environmental injustice with the fact that it's about quality of life and public health, the more that we can do, right? Sustainability is another one of those terms that often is this kind of very ambiguous terminology, and it's becoming more and more well-known within, within society. But it, it also comes back to the triple bottom line. It's people, planet, and prosperity. And too often we hear this term sustainability and we bucket it into the environment and we think, okay, environmental programs, community gardens, trees, etc. But true sustainability is a paradigm shift in how we govern, it's a paradigm shift in how we develop businesses and how we interact with our communities, and it truly comes back to enhancing quality of life of people, public health, addressing social equity and injustice. It comes back to natural resources and protecting the land, air, water, and soil that we depend on every day. And it, and it is very much about economic prosperity, job creation, and the ability for us to continue to grow our economies because that's something that we have to do. Right? We cannot stop doing that. But we cannot continue to do that while still disproportionately impacting public health and the environment. And that's the paradigm shift that all of us need to start thinking about. Right? We deal with affordable housing complex. And what I'm trying to deal with is how do we integrate not just make, making sure that the rent is affordable, but the fact that the utility cost and what we call energy burden is often the second highest cost to live and work and the second largest reason why people default on their taxes and, and on their utility bills. And they go into a default in general. They can't pay the utility. So it's one thing to build to a Florida building code, new affordable housing unit that's inefficient. And it's another thing to build to a higher performance standard so that it's affordable from a rent perspective, but also from a cost of living from a utilities perspective. And, and we have a project in Orlando where we piloted this and addressed it, and we reduced just from energy efficiency measures and putting some solar on the rooftop of this, of this community, the, uh, the, the overall utility spends for each individual unit by over $1,000 a year. 
So you're talking about saving more, nearly $100 a month for people uh, in these individual units. And that was just 150,000 more in a project that was a few million dollars, right? A, a rounding error in the grand scheme of things that completely transformed how people can actually live in this unit. So those are two really important points I wanted to make sure to get across. And so as you're talking about, you know, interacting with community and engaging the community, oftentimes it's hard for us to galvanize that support when people don't see the benefit that it has for them. True. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about how we can better engage, um, especially communities of colors. Um, and I'm thinking about the faith-based communities. Mm. Because oftentimes, you know, if, and especially in the African-American community, if nothing else, even if I don't live it, I'm going to go to church because I was <laughs> raised going to church. Right. But people and faith-based communities are largely grounded in the value of stewardship. And so how do you, how do you yes. foresee us being able to partner and collaborate with faith-based communities in order to show them the benefit and the impact thereby, you know, engaging them in the efforts to, to address this issue. Thank you. So I think both Rowan and I can speak to this. And so I actually want to take the time to share with you an uplift, an initiative that we've been working on with Organized Florida, which is a disaster resiliency initiative. So after Hurricane Maria, um, there was a grassroots fund and we, you know, collected um, some funds. And out of this, we started working with consultants, um, two consultants, um, Dr. Michael McDonald and Joanne Perodin. And so they've done disaster work, disaster resiliency work all around the world. And so, um, you know, we started working with them and um, the beautiful thing is that, long story short, we've done community forums, uh, we've done the groundwork to engage with community, with faith communities. You'll see that, like, one of the things that we soon realize is our values, right? And also, like, the reality. And the reality is that we saw the impacts of climate change and through hurricanes, right? And people, like... People getting to see that reality, like it definitely dawned on them. So I think it goes back to like lived experiences. I think sometimes we're like too much in the head explaining climate change and, and not so much talking about, okay, this is the impact that we saw and it's because of climate change. So, um, so we've been working with faith communities and other grassroots organization and other community leaders. And it's really based on the value that we need to like prepare and be resilient and we need to do this together. And so there's like a common understanding right there, um, you know, to be able to do this work. And so we've been able to engage as a, as a coalition because it's a coalition now in 16 neighborhoods where we've been able to collect data of what are the needs of the community. And we've actually been able to, you know, invest also in community leaders. So you have community leaders, some of which are from churches working on solutions or of issues that they're seeing in their communities as it relates to disaster. And so we've collected data. Um, there's priorities have been recognized on what are those needs. And we're ready. We're ready to work with elected officials and present them with this information. Going back to your faith, you know, engaging communities of faith, again, like, there needs to be a level of trust. And I know it's hard to build that trust because of historical reasons that we all know, right? 
Um, I think it's a matter of like really being in the ground with people, building those relationships, breaking bread. You know, sometimes I know it can be challenging because you're trying to do your job, but the way that community organizing, the way that we see it, this is really about relationship building and coming together and identifying our values. And when there's relationship, you can hold each other accountable. And if I may just to quickly add to that. So with this initiative, you mentioned diversity and having uh, faith-based groups. And what I meant by relationships and accountability is, for example, we're having the conversation around our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, right? And how they're impacted during disasters too. And, and having those conversations and going back to the values, do we really stand for stewardship? Do we really stand for the values that we're saying that we're stand that we're standing for? That when disaster happens, is like, are we really going to be there for each other? We got we got one last question. Okay, good. Well, one of the things that I couldn't help but think about um, is the fact that whenever we want to engage our country in some sort of behavior modification, we have a tendency to target children. Mm -hmm. um, so our school systems become a conduit, if you will, for change. The challenge in this issue is that we don't have that kind of time. Exactly. Because when you look at the war on drugs or recycling or whatever, it's usually taken about a 25-year implementation from the time that you take a child who's maybe in the third grade mm -hmm until they're able to be in a position as an adult to effectively do something. In this instance, one of the things that I began to think about is how important it is to incentivize this process for adults because adults are persuaded in ways that are different from children. But if we don't um, continue creating innovative incentives for behavior change for people who are 45, 55, 60 years old in communities, we're going to suffer anyways because the behavior modification has to begin with a population that has cars, the ability to create some sort of uh, sustainable farming practices. And so I just wanted to ask the question, have you all, what, what are some innovative, if any, at this time, what are some innovative approaches to incentivizing behavior for those who are actually able to impact climate? That's a really good question. Um, currently, the city of Orlando doesn't have any financial incentive to, to take on these programs. We do have several free programs. We have a, a free backyard composter initiative. You can just order and we literally deliver it to your door and you can start to divert your own food waste. We have a free, we have tree, free tree programs. We have free energy audits and we provide up to $2,000 for both renters and owners to make improvements to their home to save utility costs on themselves, and they can repay that back on the utility bill, and it's also an income-based subsidy. So if you're under a 40000 per year household income, we cover 85% of it. You pay $300 of the 2000 and you pay that back incrementally over two years, right, every month on the utility bill. So there are, there are certain mechanisms that we have, and what I've been trying to do is get to more of an institutional level at the city to figure out what are the levers that we can do to make huge, huge changes within, let's say, our electricity mix or how we move people around the city or what we can do in order to entice new development to achieve a higher performance standard, right? And, and from my perspective and the work that I'm doing within the city, those are some of the components that we're working towards. And I think we need to think 
I love your idea about uh, hitting adults, hitting elderly. I mean, this is intergenerational, interdisciplinary. This is an issue that's going to take everybody on board, including hitting the kids, right, and getting curriculum into the schools now to make sure that they're aware of the challenges of the status quo and how to make those changes. So I, I love that comment. Thank you. And I would throw that back at everybody in the room and say, start to think about what incentives could be, right? So in thinking about, and I think it will depend a lot on what your community looks like. So for Charlotte, it really is about how do we create these jobs for people. Um, the incentive is I, I'm my own boss. I don't have to be controlled by anybody else. I make the decision about how much money I'm going to make and I don't have to go to school for eight years, four years, whatever. Like I can, we can show them a pathway to entrepreneurship very quickly. Um, and then in food deserts, we can give you a way to cut back on your food bill by being able to, and we've started to have conversations around health and how reducing your waste also um, has an impact on your health in your pocket. So we have done some things that are more lifestyle-based and less about actual financial incentives. This month is Earth Month, um, as we all know, and so the Hip Hop Caucus is thinking about our show and our leadership committees are actually going to be hosting screenings of Paris to Pittsburgh discussions throughout the um, this month. We'll be hosting screenings in LA, DC, Charlotte, Miami, Harlem, Baltimore, Detroit, Boston, Virginia Beach, and New Orleans. For those of you listening at home, you can watch Paris to Pittsburgh for free on digital platforms including National Geographic's website, Nat Geo mobile app, video on demand, and connected devices such as Roku and Apple TV. At each screening, there will be a host a discussion where the group attending will decide on one collective action inspired from watching the film. This film excellently executes the balance of presenting our current climate issues, yet also showcasing the amazing actions that are underway. Our aim is to galvanize community action with this journey and get individuals and communities committed to more action. I'm going to turn it back over to TC. Let's give our panel a round of applause. So I want to thank um, Brandy, Chris, Michelle, and Robin for being here. You know, but I, I wanted to go back and say a couple of things. The Hip Hop Caucus is a national, uh, nonpartisan organization, and but I say that is that we're nonpartisan, but we're also postpartisan. And what do I mean by that? We don't just come to the election and stop. We're beyond the elections. We actually follow up and we actually stay in the community. So this discussion was very powerful um, because there was a lot of things that people said because we're still in New Orleans dealing with Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and then the effects of Hurricane Katrina is felt in Texas when we saw what happened to Harvey and the displacement of people. Uh, so when Michelle talked about trauma, you know, people as people of color, we should understand we are living in trauma and from trauma. Um, so how do we operate in this state of trauma that we live in? As a black man who has a clean record that has never been in jail, I always pull over or dip when I see those lights behind me or that car behind me. I just don't deal with that. You know, and, but because we're living in a state of trauma. So when we're living in our communities and when, um, when Brandy talked about we're living in food deserts and I live in Greensboro, North Carolina and I'm like, we live in a food desert. What, what does that mean? 
you know, and I didn't even understand what that meant, uh, the accessibility to fruits and vegetables and what that meant on the educational process of our children in the educational institution. Uh, and I, I thank uh, Robin because one of the times we need to hear the voices that are not so politically attached, but are really grounded and connected to the people. Because we talk about sustainability, what are, we talk about the land, but what are we about the people? And some people will have conversations about climate, but they will not have conversation about that black boy on the corner. They have conversation about the weather, but they won't talk about the climate change in the black community. You know what I'm saying? So it's climate change in the weather, but there's a climate change in our communities. And we have to make sure that we bring those two narratives together. So the hip hop caucus, we don't allow ourselves to be in silos. What it needs to be about education, what it needs, what it needs to be about all of it. It's both and, it's not either or. And we have to work on all of those fronts um, because what the sister says, when the hurricanes and when the climate change effects hit, where do our people go? So when the things happen, it's like, you know, well, what policy was, okay, right now we ain't got no policy. Can you open up your church? We just need to come in the doors and get fed and some shelter. We, we, look, well, the, 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 the meticulous matter, okay, that's nice and the whole lot. Can I just breathe some air and can I just drink some clean water, right? The fact that we buy water is a problem. Just fundamentally, that I can't drink some fresh water. That's just a fundamental problem. Um, so I'm just glad that all of you all brought that side of the conversation. Um, because sometimes we come into a, a institutional space and we don't bring the real into that institutional space. And I, I thank our panel for bringing in the real. Um, and because the narrative there for us at the caucus, even though we work with the big greens, we work with our communities. And we want to change the face of climate change because the effects of climate change doesn't look like the face of climate change. So those communities that are affected should reflect the, the leadership and the organizers that are doing the things in our community. So... With that, you know, as Brandy said, we're going to be in different communities uh, with the Paris to Pittsburgh all around. But I wanted to close out to see episode one of all of our shows um, on climate with some of our political leaders, uh, community leaders, organizations that are doing a lot of work uh, around climate change. Think100.info, uh, starting with Robin, if you can give how people can reach you, um, your social media or how people can contact you to do some follow up. So it's real simple. I'm on... Um I'm on Facebook, Robin Denise Harris. Um, that's that's probably the main way. Or my 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 email is Harris the number four Harris for six at gmail dot com. That's Harris for six at gmail dot com. And for me, um, my email is Michelle M I C H E L L E at organizeflorida.org. Um, or look me up on Facebook as well, Michelle C. Suarez, S-U-A-R-E-Z. On my end, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, certainly check me out there. I'm quite active, post up a lot of the things we're doing in the city of Orlando. I'm also on the other social platforms, so Chris Castro um, on Facebook, at Castro Ideas on Instagram, and on Twitter as well, at Castro Ideas. You can find me there. Thank you.
Like what you heard? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit think100.info to learn more about the issues and donate to this project. Also, be sure to follow us at Think100Show and at Hip Hop Caucus on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Use hashtag Think100. Thanks again and all power to the people.